Welcome to Lost But Holding Hands, Episode 2. Um, we're going to talk about temperaments today. The uh, One of the 54 listeners we've had so far uh, asked that we kind of do this one, and this was kind of second on our list anyway, so thought that it would be good to uh, maybe go deeper into some of the things that we covered in the last one. Um, before we do, I wanted to thank all 54 of you out there. As of today, the podcast has 54 plays. So uh, more saying this to, again, mark time than anything else, because it'll be cool to listen back in a few years and think about the 54 first plays. Uh, appreciate everyone. Um, since we released this last podcast, this, uh, now that number two is here, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. So if you're listening on Podbean, um, feel free to subscribe to Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe on Google Play now. You can also find us on Spotify. Not going to lie, it's pretty weird to uh, see yourself on Spotify. I think it's uh, awesome. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty cool that you can do that. Um, if you're really awesome and want to support us, just subscribe to all of them just so that we have more subscribers. Out there. <laughs> uh, we also set up um, an email address. It is lostbutholdinghandspodcast at gmail.com. Um, so if you have any questions or thoughts or something you want us to cover, um, yeah, let's uh, just email us, lostbutholdinghandspodcast at gmail.com. I think, Amy, you're going to check that yep. sometimes. You might have to remind me. Okay, cool. So, um, so yeah, without further ado, why don't we uh, just head into today's podcast? All right. So, I put a note on your sheet because last time you got to throw me off a little bit by asking me an impromptu question, so I have a question <laughs> prepared for you. So, but there's a little bit of a caveat. So the question is, so today we're talking about temperaments and kind of our personalities and stuff like that. So if you had to describe me to somebody else using only three characters from any movie or book, what would they be? Now, the caveat is, for those of you who know Tim, he hasn't seen many movies and he hasn't read many books. So if you can't do characters, you could do animals. So if you had to describe me using three characters or three animals to somebody, how what would you use? <laughs> Your face, you look so perplexed. <laughs> I don't I don't have a library of of characters. So I don't know what I would do. Can you like pick one? Um Yeah, and then especially mixing up three characters in my head, this is like an impossible question. Well, I guess I was thinking that not like one would be, you know, be able to describe me in its entirety, so do you want time to think? Maybe. I mean, the only thing that that pops up like first out of my head is is Piglet. <laughs> Why? I don't know, cause you're like you're kind of small, and sometimes when you get nervous, you talk really fast, kind of like Piglet. I don't know, and like you just kind of see the world like kind of exactly how it is sometimes. Like I don't know. I don't know that that's a great. I don't know that that's any better than the food that you picked. So maybe that maybe that's payback. That's payback. So, but I ha- came prepared, knowing that I was going to ask you this question in case you flipped around on me. So would you like to hear my three? Sure. Okay. So first up would be Kristoff from Frozen, because you're kind of outdoorsy, and you're kind of musical. And I think if it weren't for me, you'd be off in the woods somewhere, running your own business with your pet sidekick of choice. Um, but I, I don't like pets. Well, of choice. So, you know, whatever. So maybe your choice is not to be have one. But anyway, and that he was content running his own business and financially stable until a girl interrupted his life. So, um, you know, 
And then um, he's also very smart, you know, and gives her lots of wisdom. My second one would be Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. <laughs> um, because there's so many reasons. There were so many times when watching that show that I was like, man, that's like Tim. Obviously an exaggerated version, but... Um, not exaggerated at all. <laughs> not exaggerated at all. Um, but, but on the outside, he's very like... He can come across as rough around the edges, but he's a big, giant old softy, and he doesn't want anybody to know it. Um, and then... Uh, my third one was Jim from The Office um, because I think he's super efficient worker and he kind of gets all his work done really quickly and then he'd rather just be flirting with the receptionist and in this scenario I would be the receptionist. So I think you're a really great worker and you kind of inspire those around you and you'd rather be flirting with me. So those are my three. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. You're okay with that? Yeah, all lovable characters. Yeah. As long as they're a lovable character, that's okay. <laughs> Is Ron Swanson lovable? I mean, I don't know. I've never seen Parks and Rec. I kind of love him. So, you know, there you go. I've never seen Parks and Rec. So That's I true. Can't, can't comment. So there you go. All right. So well, if you think of one some more later, you can. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to go watch some movies or something to figure this out. So something that everyone at home uh, needs to know about me who's listening to this podcast is I've probably seen... Um, few enough movies that I could count them on two hands. Um, a total? Like all the movies you've seen? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, no. Not including like the kids' movies and stuff, you know? Oh, like, okay. like movies that I've seen for me, oh, probably. Okay. Um, until recently, uh, I've probably read more books in the last two years than I have in the 31 years before that, probably. And again, excluding like little kids books that were read to me and stuff like that but like actual like novels so yes that question was nearly impossible well that's why i gave you the animals if you had to describe someone me to someone with an animal yeah i don't know no maybe a well bear. I, I looked at my temperament and my animal was golden retriever which i love golden retrievers i was like that's awesome i was thinking koala bear because they're like <laughs> cute and cuddly but they're actually like kind of cranky on the inside <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> Right. This is a podcast about temperament, so we'll find out that it's probably not that far off, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, cool. So, <laughs> so back to the podcast. <laughs> Curveball thrown. Um, so today we are, yeah, we're going to talk about temperaments. Um, and so uh, maybe we'll start a little bit. I'll start by talking about why this topic is so meaningful to us. I think it's important, and I think it's like really fitting that this is one of the first um, podcasts that we do. And, I, and the reason why I say that is because I think that this idea that we'll unpack today and the book, um, The Temperament God Gave Us, that was given to us by our, uh, by our marriage counselor, um, that, that book and the ideas in that book and the, and the talk about temperament was really, you know, what, like seven years ago or something, was really the thing that kind of started us down this journey of growth as married people. And we didn't even really intend for it to be that way. And I don't even know that, you know, our, our counselor would have ever thought it would have been as profound as it was. Obviously she thought it was a good book or she wouldn't have recommended it to us, but it really started us down this path of learning and discovery. And, it, and it's been something that we've referred back to, um, for the last seven years since it's been a part of, since the idea has been a part of our lives, we've probably bought, 
I don't know, 20 or 30 copies of it at this point and handing them out to people and giving them to different people. Or at least recommended them, yeah. And recommended it. And, you know, it's just been... So if the authors are listening, we should get a commission, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. So there's something we referred back to kind of over and over again. And I think for a few reasons. Um, I think the first is that just reading the book and having a name for the way that I'm wired and the way that Amy's wired and to read these descriptions of the temperaments, which we'll get into in just a minute, but to read these descriptions, all of a sudden it sort of kind of depersonalized a lot of the stuff that was going on in our relationship. So we realized that, you know, some of the things that we do, um, a lot of the things that we do are the root is in sort of how we're wired and it's not an excuse for ever being mean and, or, or, you know, hurting each other or anything like that. It's never an excuse. However, it it is a bit of a reason why. And I think it helped to depersonalize some things that really weren't personal, but that seemed personal, but they really weren't personal. Um, and so that, that sort of like was step one and it sort of like opened up a little bit of grace for one another, just because it's like, you know what? Maybe Amy's actually not trying to bug me. Maybe she's actually just doing things the way that she's wired and inclined to do them. And it happens to bug me. And even just, and it, and it kind of sounds silly to say that out loud seven years later, or even say it out loud 15 minutes after we read the book pages, you know, about us. But, but in reality, that's kind of a mental shift that happened um, kind of as this became part of our uh, consciousness. It also, in, in similar to that, gave us some words to use to describe how we felt and to to give us some common vocabulary because one of the things that we learned uh, through this is that um, is that we would oftentimes use the same words, but the, a word through her temperament, through Amy's temperament's point of view, meant something very different than a word from my uh, you know point of view. And so by having something to point at and something to, to name that that thing, that way we're wired, it gave us some vocabulary that ended up being very useful. Um, and then maybe, you know, kind of summarize, maybe the last thing that it really sort of did for us, um, and it was funny, we were working on the, the notes for this podcast, it wasn't even like top of mind for me, but it was top of mind for Amy, and I couldn't agree more. It gave us some, some self-awareness. You know, it's like the more you know, at first it was really entertaining to kind of learn about the other because it was so different and we were just sort of flabbergasted at how different it was. But really, I think some of the more profound things were things that we learned about ourselves that made us um, more aware of what we were doing to the other and just how we were influencing the general world around us. One of the things I think is so cool about this topic and something that it did for me is that it's really about... Um, this topic in general, and it, it could be the temperament book, you know, the temperament guy gave you, it could be um, any of those things we mentioned in the first podcast could be the color code, could be the Myers-Briggs, could be any of them. But one of the things that I think this book does, and some of these other ones do well too, but what this one book does is it describes, you know, your temperament. And then it also describes your relationship with the other temperaments. And I think it was really impactful to understand, you know, um, what does a choleric like me do to a melancholic? Like what are the, like Amy, what are the, um, the, the traps, the pitfalls, the tendencies that tend to happen? But what I figured out very quickly was that obviously Amy's not the only person in my life I have a relationship with and she's not the only person whose relationship with me gets better if I understand them better. So I started to like look around at work and while I didn't, you know, give everyone the temperament test, so I wasn't sure, it's pretty easy to like, 
pick out, you know, people's tendencies and to start to think, well, maybe that person's this or maybe that person's that. And then if I think about what my what my temperament tends to do with those other temperaments, I can work out my work relationships and I can think about what what gets tangled up there and I can work out, you know, relationships at, at church or relationships with our kids. There's also another derivative of the book called The Temperament God Gave Your Kids, um, you know, that talks about that relationship inside of that power dynamic. But I think generally it was really profound because our our life, our world is so filled with relationships um, and and it, it's you know, the better those relationships are with our friends and with our coworkers and with our kids and with all the things, the better our lives are and the richer our lives are. So it's applicable first, you know, the first places that it started to bear fruit was sort of in our marriage as we started to understand this more. But it's really, um, it's really helped me to understand my relationships in general with just the people that I interact with. And I think it's been super useful. So it's cool because, like I said, it was one of the first things that we got from our counselor and it was definitely one of the first things that made any sort of like substantial impact. So the idea that we start here in this overall story is kind of cool, even though, you know, there's only, you know, only people like Amy are going to start at the beginning and read it all the way through. But, it's, <laughs> but you know, it's, a, it's an early part of our story. So I think it's a cool thing to do. I actually haven't life. read the whole book. <laughs> so for full disclosure, I think maybe now I've possibly read the whole thing, but I haven't read it from start to finish. I kind of jumped to the sections that were just you and me in there, but, um, but yeah, so, um, so we, like you said, we got the book in marriage counseling and I kind of want to give a preface to this. So we ended up in counseling because, um, about, I think we had math in what, five years into our marriage. Is that about right? Um, and right after he was born, um, I was, I was really struggling with postpartum depression and, I was really, I'm really grateful now that I had people in my life like Tim and my sister who were able to look at me and go, you need, really need help. And so counseling really started as something for me, um, for postpartum depression, but, um, but it was the first time that Tim had ever come with me. And I think that that made all the impact. And so several months later, you know, I was finally starting to get my feet underneath me with, with that. And it sort of turned into marriage counseling almost kind of like unintentionally. And for me, at least, I don't know about you, but for me, it was, it wasn't because we were on the brink of divorce or, you know, we were, um, headed in that direction by any means. For me, it was more of a, well, dang, let's see how awesome we can really make this. Let's see how far we can take this thing and just run with it and make our marriage super duper strong and awesome. And what was cool to me was at the time, and since then, I have um, run into other couples, um, usually around our age, um, that are, are kind of seeing marriage counseling as that same thing. That, like, it's our generation's way of avoiding getting down the line and avoiding getting to the place where, well, this is our last Dutch effort before we're going to get a divorce. And I think that's really beautiful and awesome. And so that's kind of where it started. And so, um, so... Yeah, like he said, the book was one of the first things she gave us. Um, and it's called The Temperament God Gave You. And we'll put that in the show notes. Um, and then, so the book has um, it has a test that you can take to kind of figure out which one you are. It has the, um, it kind of describes what the temperaments are. So a little bit of background, and I'll try to keep it brief, but the four Greek temperaments are choleric, melancholic, sanguine, and phlegmatic. And basically... 
they are, um, it's kind of like your blueprint. It's like what you're born with. So in the nature nurture question, um, it is the nature. So it's not the end all be all of your personality. It's just kind of like, this is how you're originally wired. Um, and then, you know, in your life and your experience, you end up with the sum total, which would be like your personality. Um, and so there's the, the section, you know, that describes the different um, temperaments. And then it has a section on secondary te temperaments because a lot of people are um, a combination, which I feel like I'm a pretty strong combination, whereas Tim is a pretty solid choleric. I'm a melancholic phlegmatic. Um, and then it has the spousal pairings, which Tim kind of talked about um, with the different temperaments. It has the, uh, parent and child pairings, which I love. Um, and then one of my favorite sections actually is um, or it does talk about the combination temperaments. Um, and then it has a section on spirituality. And so uh, I was I was looking at this the other day, trying just scanning the book and stuff for this podcast, and um, I ran across the section on melancholics. And one of the things in the spiritual section it talked about was fostering joy because melancholics have tendencies towards, like, depression and despair. Um, and so one of the things, you know, we talked about on the first podcast was sort of this last year. And one of the things that I've been trying to do was a gratitude journal. And so that was one of the things that they had kind of touched on in the spiritual section. I was like, yeah, I'm doing that. And it's going well. So, so that's kind of cool too. I love that it, it really dives into, okay, now that you know that you're this, this is where to take it. So, um, the, um, the other thing, I think that we learned, kind of that there are no good and bad temperaments. When I first took this test, I went, man, I don't really like that I'm melancholic. <laughs> and because the description, to be fair, like in the book, I feel like they're really struggling to say anything positive about melancholics. Um, and Tim just looks at me, he goes, man, that's a really melancholic thing to say, <laughs> which is true. Um, so I'm here to give a shout out to all you melancholics out there. Um, we're going to share this kind of overview of the different uh, descriptions and there are good things and positive things about melancholics. Yeah, that's so. one of the things that I think is really, um, that has, you know, over the last seven years of thinking about this and wrestling with it and talking about it, I think that's the thing that continues to sort of grow the most. Because what the, the understanding that there's no good or bad temperaments. Yeah. Because, you know, if there were good and bad temperaments, at least on the surface, part of the dynamic of our relationship is that mine's the sort of like quote unquote good one and yours is right. sort of the quote unquote bad one, right? Yeah. And what do we mean by that, right? Like, so, the, so colorics tend to be like powerful and a CEO type and get things done and productive and all that stuff. And in a lot of ways... I think in the American culture, that's very like valued. Yeah, I think so. What's What I think is really fascinating to me, um, and I have several melancholics in my life, so I think about this, but it's like in a lot of ways the the good part you know the good one the the choleric is good by all of the standards of the world and it's by all of the things that ultimately aren't super meaningful right um, my ability to to earn money and get things done isn't necessarily the most meaningful thing we can do in our lives right and then the thing that is um, sort of the quote-unquote bad and no one can see my air quotes uh, the quote-unquote bad temperament the melancholic ones like when you start to read about the strengths and the gifts it's all the things that ultimately matter. And, and I think that in certain ways, even that tension is sort of like the devil kind of like, like messing with us, right? Because he's planting the seed of doubt for the people who 
have the biggest ability to make the greatest difference in the things that matter. And he's propping up the pride of the people who are really good at doing things that don't matter. And that's really like not, that, those are that's extreme examples. That's a very sweeping generality. It's a very sweeping generality. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really kind of interesting, even in sort of like the way that the devil can sort of like move us around in our perceptions of things in order to t- sort of twist it around. And what I think is cool about our understanding of this stuff is that as, as it's blossomed, right, like what we've what we've come to realize is that a lot of times that, that Amy and I would get tangled up, it would be because she's trying to do something my way because my way seems to be like a more productive or like a better way. And, and we just realize over and over again, the deeper we get up under it, that it's it's really not about better or worse or anything like that. It's about figuring out how to mesh our strengths together so that um, so that we get all of it, so that we get a well-rounded version of good um, for whatever it is that we're working on. Um, and, and we'll explore that kind of more in a few minutes, but I think it's like really it's just a, a, a point that I think is really important um, that there just are no good or bad temperaments. They, they are. The tem- a temperament is, right? It's the way you're wired. It's the way I was wired. I didn't get to pick it, and there's really nothing I get to do about it other than work to um, magnify my strengths and to minimize my weaknesses. And, and what's cool about this book being a Christian book is it talks about redeeming whatever the temperament is, right? Like how do we make a holy version of this temperament? Because God God made it. So they're all good. Um, they're all inherently good because God made them. But how do we make them holy in our lives? And that's kind of like our challenge. And the thing is, is that the reason why holiness kind of looks different and why the path to holiness looks different is because we're all starting from like kind of a different place. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to give a quick overview of the four temperaments. And um, uh, this is very brief, obviously. But um, so the four, again, are uh, sanguine, choleric, melancholic, and phlegmatic. And this, um, they kind of, in the book, they talk about like four, a four quadrant um, thing. And so um, choleric and sanguine are the extroverted personality, and melancholic and phlegmatic are introverted personalities um and uh sanguines are lighthearted they're fun loving they're confident um and they're the tiggers of the world so we're going to give you a poo character to try to keep this in your head so sanguine are are um tiggers um the cholerics are they're doers they're ambitious and energetic um you know they say rome wasn't built in a day well if it had been up to clerics it would have been Um, so, um, melancholics are thinkers, they're, um, ponders, they're, they tend to be kind and considerate, very detail oriented. Um, phlegmatics are self-content, they're kind, um, very chill, peaceful, um, relaxed. So the choleric would be kind of like rabbit, um, melancholics would be like Eeyore, and phlegmatic would be like Pooh Bear. So these are very like just to give you kind of a visual to try to hang on to. Um, and I didn't I didn't really want to dive into um, the list of negative qualities for these because when we talked about this, we said, you know, the greatest strength can also be turned on its head for its greatest weakness. And so um, and everybody can go read the book, too. But um, but yeah, so so that's a brief overview. And, you know, something that I didn't think about until kind of just now and, and um, is that. The idea that like there's no good or bad temperaments, they just sort of are and how we mm-hmm. sort of like need to maximize strengths and stuff. When you think about most like movies, the 
the cohort of people who go, who are required to make something happen. It's like not usually like a single hero. It's normally like a group of people yeah. that, that are required to kind of like save the day. Right. A lot of times they're sort of a, a very extreme archetype of Those each four. of the four. Hey, buddy. Um, hey. Um, where's my water bottle? I can't really see that good in that dark. I think it's on, like, grab your water. Oh. I think it's, um. All right, real life. Kid interruption. He, Mathen was looking for his water bottle. So, uh, what were we saying? Talking about, like, the, uh, the heroes in a movie and how a lot of times, um, you know, there's, like, a group of people required to sort of save the day. And if you really start to think about it, and of course they're not, you know, perfect examples of this, but what you end up finding is that there's kind of one from, at least one from each of those groups, um, or like, you know, like sitcoms and, and groups of friends and things. And I think a lot of that probably has to do with because together, you know, you, all the strengths are sort of represented and, and we need all those kinds of different points of view and different strengths in order to make something really uh, big kind of happen. Yeah, so. that's true. I didn't think about that. Um, so, so at the point at which we got this book, um, uh, so we've, you know, we talk, we're talking about the Greek temperaments, but one of the other tests that we've taken was the, um, the color code test. And the reason that we really like these two particular ones is again, cause they kind of go into relationship hearings. And so, um, what was funny was Tim sent me the description of, um, the color code pairing that we are, which he would be red and I'm blue. And the name of, like, they gave titles to the uh, spousal pairings. And ours was called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So basically, we are the hardest, most opposite, contentious combination. Um, and, but when, but it also said that when powers combined, you know, we're kind of like this unstoppable pair. So at the point at which we received this book, we were quite contentious, I would say, um, and and so you had kind of, uh, can you kind of rehash like the night that we sort of broke into this book? Yeah, so again, we didn't really intend to go on some like epic journey through this, but what um, kind of what happened was is we got the book and, you know, again, I'm not really much of a reader, so I wasn't the one who picked it up, but so Amy's sitting there in bed. And I forget what I was doing, but I just remember I was only like kind of like half around. I was kind of busy doing something. And Amy was reading a book. Kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> so Amy was over there reading a book. In this scenario, yes. I am the one reading the book. Yeah, and so she's she's uh, working through the book. And she gets to the um, the part about cholerics because we had like I had done the test. And so she knew I was a cleric. And so she gets to the part that describes – there's like a like two-page description of that basically like – a narrative that describes like what a, how a cleric thinks, like what's in their head, and uh, and so she starts laughing when she goes, "Hey Tim, you mind if I read a couple of pages to you?" And I was like, "Yeah, I don't care. Like read them to me." And so she starts to read this description of a cleric, and she's just reading it, reading it, reading it, reading it. And at the end, she kind of looks at me and is like, "So, so what did you think?" And and she was sort of asking the question because she's kind of like you know the the little thought bubble above her head was because that's crazy and there's no way you think like that. And I literally looked at her and said, I don't think that in two pages I could have written a better description of how my brain works myself. It yeah. was like, 
if you so the people at home, if you want to know how Tim thinks, just go right to that page about cleric, read the, the two pages, and it is spot on exactly how my brain works, exactly how I perceive the world. It is like the best description I've ever read. And and I just kind of remember Amy was kind of sitting there thinking, like, like, wow, like if that's yeah. really how he thinks, then that's like that's just like so different. And so I kind of was like, well, well, let, read yours now, right? Yeah. So she flips over to hers and she's reading hers. And I'm just sitting there thinking, there's just no way on earth people actually think like this. <laughs> really. And it's not because it's bad. It's just that like, it, it's just it was so, so different. So different than the way my brain works. Like so different. And here I was thinking that I was, you know, pretty um, aware of people and I have, I've had a lot of friends in my life and I don't really have like a super hard time with that kind of thing. And I was you know, meeting with clients and I seem to get along with all these kinds of different people. And so I thought I was a pretty, you know, pretty understanding human. Um, and I, and here I am like thinking to myself, wow, like no wonder why everything that I try to do to make our relationship better or help us get along better or, or try to do anything. No wonder why it doesn't work because I'm over here thinking that Amy's only maybe, you know, I knew the world everyone in the world sort of sees it differently. Like that's not new, but well, I was always thinking that it was maybe just a few degrees different from the way I saw it. So I thought, well, maybe, you know, I should be able to just explain something to the point that, that other people could see my side. But what I've realized is that based on like, you know, explaining things isn't going to get there. Right. It's like there are, if your worldview is so different and your brain just, just processes the world that differently. It's not a matter of explaining, right? So, and and what I realized was, is that there's that I'm there's going to be things that Amy experiences that I can intellectually accept as true, and that I can even intellectually sort of predict, but I can't ever assume that I'm going to really like deeply understand, like that I would arrive at that same place myself one day, right? And so you're making a face at me. Well, was, do you have an example of that by chance? Well, I think, you know, um, one of my friends talks about like different kinds of people, right? And I think this is like a really cool example. So like when when I walk down the sidewalk, mm-hmm. I sort of assume that people will flow around me. <laughs> I don't get out of people's way. Not in like a mean way. I'm not like, you know, like shoulder checking people like out of the way. Yeah. But I just don't really, really think about like all these other people and I'm not considering what every other person on that busy sidewalk is what they're trying to accomplish. I'm focused on what I'm trying to accomplish and I'm going to do it reasonably within where they are, but I'm not going to go out of my way to accommodate all of their paths. Right. And you tell me if this is wrong, but it's like the way Amy kind of sees it is that when she walks down that sidewalk, she's concerned about where everyone else is going and what they're trying to accomplish. And so she's taking it all in and she's processing it. And it's not like that it's a better or a worse kind of thing, but it's a, I will never have the experience of that sidewalk the way that you experience that sidewalk. Yeah. I can understand how you might experience that sidewalk. I can understand why it's more stressful mm-hmm. for you to be on that sidewalk than it is for me. These are all things that I know, like intellectually, but I will never stand on a sidewalk and experience that sidewalk the way that you experience that sidewalk. Yeah. I won't. I'm not wired to experience it in that same way. And so I think 
like when I, and I'm continuing to sort of unpack and understand what this means, but it's really super profound for me because I would get frustrated because you wouldn't just operate from my experience. Sure. I just, I was like, man, your life would just be so much easier if you just walked down the center of that sidewalk. And I just kept thinking, if I just keep telling you to do that, then one day I could coach you into doing that. But you're not, but even if you do that, even if you change your behavior, you're going to experience it the way that you're wired to experience it. So that's funny that that was your example because I actually kind of did an experiment because um, I, I remember us talking about this before and I would tried to walk down the sidewalk as if I was you and I'd say about like half the people did get out of my way and I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. And then the other half like just ran into me. <laughs> and so, um, so maybe those are the other yous I was crashing into, but, um, but I did find an exception to that rule. And the exception is if I'm getting, if I have to get to my child quickly, people get the heck out of my way. I think it's like the mom face goes on and like, well, no, what it is though is it's it's the way you carry yourself, right? Right. And 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 I think that's part of like, you can, there are things you can learn. And I think that's why like the temperaments aren't a trap, right? It's not like a sure. death sentence, right? So like no. if, if your temperament has a, has a weakness that you feel like you need to overcome so that you can get the thing that you want to get in your life, mm-hmm. we'll go learn how to do it. But what you have to realize is that when, when you're doing that as a person, any of us, when we're trying to, when we need to do something that plays to a weakness, we just have to recognize it's going to be difficult and we're going to be swimming upstream. It's not that you can't make it. It's not that you can't do it. It's not that you can't overcome the thing, right? We can overcome it. We can learn. We can learn behaviors. We can whatever. Mm-hmm. But we're going to be swimming upstream. It's going to take more energy. It's going to be effort. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be work. So we're not going to be instantly good at it, right? Well, sure. And at the time that we read this book, I would have, I did see my sort of descriptions as weaknesses. I did sort of see it as the lesser um, temperament. And I would have seen it as sort of, um, like a negative thing that I walked down the sidewalk the way that I do. But now years later and, and, and the person that I am today and just mulling over this for the last several years, I am, I'm actually kind of content with the way that I walk down the sidewalk because I see it as just another, um, facet of my loving people. Like I don't mind getting out of the way. I, I'm okay moving for other people because they might have something going on that day that's making them not paying attention, pay attention. And so, yeah, like, absolutely. but I, I also understand your approach as well. Absolutely. And I think it's, and, and that's so exactly the point, right? Is it's not that we're supposed to walk down the middle of the sidewalk and not care. And it's not that we're supposed to take everyone into consideration. It's actually sort of both, right? So like mm-hmm. what I have to do is in my life, I have to learn more how to consider the other people. Mm-hmm. And what you have to do in your life is figure out how to, when it's appropriate, how to sort of assert yourself so that you're not right. bogged down and Not let people run over me. And you're not frozen by all the other concerns around you. Sure. So it's sort of, I think the book talks about sort of coming to center, right? So if there's right. those four quadrants, mm-hmm. we're all sort of like, wired in a certain place we all start somewhere on those quadrants but the idea is to sort of move to center so it and it's just the things that i have to work on Mm -hmm. are different than Mm -hmm. the things that you have to work on to sort of get to center but the idea isn't to isn't that either one of those scenarios is the right one Mm -hmm. it's just that they're different and we Mm -hmm. but for me the big epiphany was that 
that you are going to experience that sidewalk Mm -hmm. just so differently than the way I'm going to experience it. Yeah. And, and so I have to just, so then I have to start learning like how you experience things because I, once I recognize that all of a sudden I can't use my experience to Mm -hmm. try to help you. Mm -hmm. Well, then I was like, well, so that means I don't know anything. Then I don't know what to do. Right. You know, so I had to start to learn how you experience the world. If I'm ever going to be successful at like actually creating situations and environments and doing things for you that are actually going to be meaningful to you, mm-hmm. I have to sort of like like learn intellectually with my like with my brain, go figure out mm-hmm. what is it like to experience the world you do, so that I can mm-hmm. influence the way I want to influence. Yeah, and and to be fair, I feel like I'm at least on my part. I feel like you're pretty good at it, but I feel like I'm still learning that because you are so vastly different from me that I still struggle with sort of understanding. I think I understand sort of in a heady way kind of where you're coming from, but in a heart way, a lot of times it's like, well, I kind of see where he's coming from, but I don't really understand it like in a heart understand kind of way. Um, And so, so let's uh, rewind kind of to right after we started reading this book and kind of reading, well, I read the book. um, We, the first kind of things that we stumbled through were looking at the things that were persistent problems for us um, and kind of the things that caused those collisions on a regular basis or those fights um, and kind of working them out with this new lens that we had been given. And so um, so one example that we talked about early on was cleaning the house. Um, so at this point, I mean, Tim, you were working outside the house um, you know, working long hours. So I was, um, at home at this point with Mathen. Um, and so, um, so we had talked about cleaning the house, but, and I don't know if this necessarily, I think this is a temperament. Maybe, okay. Anyway, but so when, when we had talked about how you really appreciated a clean house, but the problem was when I heard clean house, my definition was wildly different and in my very melancholic, detail-oriented, idealistic, um, perfectionist tendency, I took that as he expected the house to be, what is it, like white glove clean. Just the Because um, when I envisioned cleaning, I envisioned like getting out the toothbrush and, and fine scrubbing everything and stripping down. And, and I would spend a whole day, well, pre-child, I would spell, <laughs> spend an entire day just stripping down an entire room. I mean, if I cleaned the living room, it was, you know, I'm going to wash the curtains and the cushion covers. I'm going to move every single speck of furniture and vacuum. I'm going to dust. I'm going to um, reorganize the systems in that room. And granted, picture this in like a two-bedroom apartment, so it's not like our living room was that, you know, ginormous at this point. So I would spend an entire day cleaning in this perfectionist, idealistic world view and he would come home and he wouldn't he'd be like I don't know that you'd actually say this but like your attitude was but the whole rest of the house is really dirty or decluttered and like dinner's not and non-functional and dinner's not made because you're so exhausted from cleaning and, and I can't would, make it anyway because there's dishes everywhere. There's right. no clean pots and pans. And right. no, you can't make dinner because we don't have anything that we need to make dinner. Yeah. And I would just feel crushed because I had just spent every ounce of energy I had, you know, cleaning this entire room so that it would feel nice for you. Um, 
And so when I explained this to him on what I was hearing when he said he appreciated a clean house, um, the light bulb sort of went off. And then he kind of explained what he was thinking, which was... Well, yeah, so for me, like a clean house is like functionally clean. And so, reasonable. <laughs> well, I, I see, I think that's still you trying to say that your version is not as good as my version, and I yeah. just don't think that's true, right? Sure. I think it's really like deep was what we're kind of figuring out. But but so for me, clean mm-hmm. is functional. So as long as I can walk around and not trip on things, I can make dinner because the, the required pots and pans are available to use, mm-hmm. um, you know, generally like the things that bug me are like when surfaces have stuff on them because then I can't like use the surface for the surface's sake. It's like if my desk turns into a shelf, then I can't use my desk as a desk anymore. And so that's really frustrating. So I like to leave things in such a way that I can go back and and immediately use them again. Right. But like if the shower isn't, you know, like scrubbed clean, if there's water spots on the on the shower doors and stuff like that doesn't really bother me mm-hmm. until it gets like a certain threshold. And then when it's gross, it bothers me, but it's like, but just, you know, some water spots on the mirror or some water spots on the, the shower doors or, or things like that. Um, you know, if the floor isn't mopped every week or something like that, those kinds of things don't really bother me as long as I'm not tripping over stuff and I can functionally kind of move around. And so you can imagine when I come home and like, there's a spotless room and then, but we can't have dinner. Like, I'm immediately frustrated, but at the same time, like Amy's put all this work into it and I haven't honored the work that she's done because I don't even understand why she did that. Right. And so to, to kind of go back to where we were, the way that I was starting to handle that, which just absolutely doesn't work, is I would immediately start to try to try to consult with her or try to coach her into how to clean in a way that was more rational. <laughs> and it's like... Ouch. And, and so what that would do is that would immediately invalidate the work that she did. It would immediately sort of like tell her that her way was wrong um, and that the thing and, – and, but I think the meta thing that was like really hard for you when I would do that is that you went to this place of, but this thing that I did brings me joy mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of effort. And if I do it your way and the house is functionally clean, I'm never going to get my joy. So there was always this battle of does Tim does Tim get what brings him joy or does Amy get what brings her joy? And we certainly don't have this figured out just like we don't have anything figured out. We also have two children. <laughs> yeah, but but even with that, right? But what we what we're starting to realize is that um, making that kind of decision isn't the right move. Like if you go back to like the Stephen Covey like seven habits stuff, like we we've got to figure out how to like go for a win win. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out there has to be some way that we can both win and that's the right solution. The right solution isn't for Amy to just decide that, well, I'm, I'm just going to clean Tim's way and I'm just going to give up on any fact that I'll ever get any joy out of this. But on the flip side, like it can't be the other way either, right? Like we can't have a spotless bathroom and the rest of the house be a disaster because that's not going to bring me any joy either. Mm-hmm. So um, what I think, you know, there's two things that started to happen through this lens around that story. I think one was that when I would walk in, so like my tendency would be to walk in and to think, you know, Amy just completely disregarded what I wanted. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a personal thing. Mm-hmm. That she just completely disregarded what she knows is right or what I care about. Well, the truth is she didn't know that because what she was trying to do is she was trying to clean. 
which she thought was going to make me happy, but she was doing it from her worldview. That was why it didn't work for me because she wasn't doing it the way that I wanted to do it, which leads me to the second point, which is then we started to think about if I'm going to do something and I intend it to be for the other person, then I have to sort of think about what would be the thing, what would be the way of doing that thing that's meaningful to them. So if I'm going to clean the house because I think I want to give that as a gift to Amy, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to pick up the entire house. What I'm going to do is I'm going to mop the floor mm-hmm. or I'm going to clean the shower because those are the, like I'm going to clean, clean it. And I'm not going to clean it like a choleric either. Like I'm going to get out the toothbrush, right? And I'm going to leave way too much more time than I think I need to do it because if I do it halfway, it's not going to, it's not going to reap any benefit that I'm trying to get, which is to make her happy with it. Right. So I got to do it her way. And, and it's kind of tricky because there's a lot of things still left in the world. And, and there were a lot of things, a lot more things then that I'm not always certain what her way is. Right. Cause I've never experienced that. So it's, it's a learning process, but it's cool because it really makes us sort of like lean in and try to figure it out and try to pay attention. Um, mm-hmm. because yeah, it's like, I literally have to like learn it because I have no, I have no experience to draw from to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So I had taken the kids to go visit my sister and he had completely rearranged our kitchen, which for some wives out there, that would probably drive them really insane. I was super stoked about this. Um, cause he was able to kind of apply his clericness and make it functional and systematic. Um, and I love it. But he also left time for cleaning it. And so when I walked in the kitchen when I got home, like I knew it was going to be rearranged. Um, but I, was, I couldn't figure out why it felt like felt different. And I, I, and I realized now, because we just talked about this recently, that he had like deep cleaned the kitchen. And it was so clean and it, it like felt so good and it made me so happy. And because like you said, you had left time to do that for me. And it was awesome. Yeah. I actually got a little bit tangled up because so at the last minute I'm standing there at Home Depot, this is a complete aside, but I'm standing there at Home (laughs) Depot and I was walking through, um, we had one of those sinks that has like the one handle that moves around that like changes the water amount and the temperature. I don't know what they're called, but they have a little thing inside that goes bad and it starts to leak and ours was leaking and it was really bugging me. And I was like, well, I'm at Home Depot anyway, I'm going to get the part. Well, to get the part, I had to walk down the faucet aisle. And then, and I've always kind of wanted a gooseneck faucet in our kitchen because it really bugs me that you can't get the pot up under the other one. Um, so I walk by and I see these like all these faucets and I completely forget what I was in the aisle and I start looking around and then there was one that was on sale and I was like, oh, it's on sale and it's a gooseneck faucet and I want this. <laughs> so I grab it and I was like thinking to myself, Tim, like I'm pretty handy, but I was like, just, you don't need another project. You've already done too many things in the kitchen, you don't need another project. And I was like, and the other side of me, the little angel side of me was like oh you can do it it'll be easy it's just a faucet and i've replaced faucets before so i get home and it ends up being this fiasco five trips to home depot later i get this faucet in and but like the third trip to home depot after i had gotten the old faucet out and i'm like deeply committed to actually now we need a faucet in the kitchen so it has to happen i start to get worried because i'm like oh no like your desire to get one more functional thing done perhaps jeopardize this entire project because I knew that the most important part of this project was for Amy to walk in and it be mopped and the kit and the cabinets be like really scrubbed down. And even if I had done that later after she came home, it wouldn't have meant the same thing. And so I remember being in this like little bit of a choleric conundrum, but I ended up, you know, ended up working real hard on that, on the kitchen sink. And then, and then I just dropped everything else and started cleaning because 
I really wanted it more than anything to be for her. So I knew I had to like make it kind of her way. I had to, I had to make time for it to be her way. Um, and it was cool because that was one of those times where like, I actually think it was a better thing anyway, because I got what I needed, which was a functional kitchen. And I mean, it was, I enjoyed having it clean too. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I hated having a clean kitchen, right? <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed having it clean. So it was, it was kind of a cool, uh, cool thing, but I had to be really like intentional about it because I probably could have added three or four more projects to that day. Um, but, I also, but I was glad I didn't. I also think too, though, that by understanding sort of your motivation, your intentions has allowed me to also appreciate when things sort of fall short, uh, fall short in quotes, like when it, when it doesn't come across as as much as for me as I would have liked, if that makes any sense, um, understanding kind of your intention, your motivation and stuff has has given me the ability to see the intention and the love behind it, even if it doesn't come out perfectly. And so whereas I think before I was viewing things from a critical point because if I had done that thing, it would have meant, you know, if I had done action A, it would have meant you know, solution B, whereas now I can say, oh, action A actually means solution C because it has his intention and his love behind it. And so it kind of gives us two two of those, you know. Yeah, that's solutions. a good point because, like, if you do something for me but you do it in a melancholic way, I can say, oh, she did that in a melancholic way and I can at least appreciate that it was for me. Yeah. Instead of saying, why did you do that? That was a complete miss. You knew I wouldn't like that. Right. Well, you know, that would be sort of like my previous reaction. Yeah. I'm seeing the love behind it. Um, so where do we, where do we go from here? Um, yeah. So I think, um, along those same lines of like doing things for the other, I think there's also like, um, a little bit of, of trying to, um, trying to sort of socially engineer our relationship. So like one of the things that we would always like and still do sometimes, but like one of these like big struggles was these like really stupid little decisions. And one Mm -hmm. of the ones was like trying to find a place to eat. And so what I would do is I would just, because I I really genuinely don't honestly care all that much where we go to eat. And Amy generally does and has had some health problems and has some different things that have made, made her eating more complicated than my eating. I thought, oh, I'll make it easy and I will just defer to her and let her make whatever decision. And it would get really frustrating because she would say, well, what's around? And I'm like, we've lived in this house for four years. There's been no new restaurants that have opened. It's the exact same restaurants that there were yesterday and the day before that and the week before that. And we only eat at five of them anyway. So there's really only like five choices. Why are you asking me? Right? And I don't care where we go. And it would be like really frustrating to me because I'm like, we need to get out of the house, especially now we have kids. Like they're hungry. I'm hungry. You're hungry. Everybody's about to melt. Well, it's always like a last a minute, let's, you know. Yeah, and I'm like, why can't you just make a decision? Just make a decision. Just make a decision. If you read the book, you'll realize that is the wrong thing to do <laughs> for a melancholic. Complete wrong thing to do. And so um, so what I've realized is is that I can actually, with like a small change, actually get what we want. Because the truth is, my, my objective um, assessment of the situation was absolutely true. And at the end of the day, it's better if Amy kind of makes the decision. And it's you know, because I don't really care and, and she does and she has stuff and whatever. But but just being irritated that she's not making a decision is not the way to get that done. So what I've started to realize is that I can leverage my uh, plannerness to think about, oh, it's 4.30. We typically eat or leave to go out to a restaurant. If we're going to a restaurant at 5.30, I'm going to ask her right now. Because we're old people. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Super late. Um, 
But so I'm going to ask her right now, what does she want to go eat? And I'm going to just like let it sit. And well, I'm going to give her 30 you... or 45 minutes to before I even bother to try to see if she's made a decision. Well, even yeah. the way that you would form the quest, start to form the question, you would say, hey, we are going to go out to dinner tomorrow or in a couple hours or whatever. Um, so if you would just think about where you want to go, it was like the you changed your whole approach and, and kind of framed it in that way of I'm giving you time. Start to think about it, you know. Yeah, and then Amy gets what she wants, which is she gets to go to a place she actually wants to go to. Um, and I get what I want, which is Amy gets to go to a place she actually wants to go to. Because it would nothing would frustrate me more than we would get to a restaurant that theoretically she chose because she said the word. And we get there and she's like, I don't want this. And I'm like, but you just chose it. But in reality, what it was is she just made any random decision because she wanted the pressure of the decision to go away. And... It's just like when that little pop-up in Windows, when it's like, would you like to save your document? And you just like compulsively click no, and it's always the wrong answer. <laughs> it's like, that's exactly how Amy chooses things under pressure. She like, like spazzes out and like 100% of the time clicks the wrong button. And it's like, so. Actually, that's you, but I don't spaz on that because I'm used to it being asked. But no, it used to be a, a kind of a joke between us that if, um, like if I had to make a 50-50 decision, I would 100% get it wrong every time. Yeah, always. And it, and it was just like an on-the-spot thing, and we kind of joked about that at restaurants, like how I would, you know, the waiter would show up at the table, everybody was ready except me, and I would make the wrong decision. The waiter would walk away and be like, man, but I really wanted this other thing. And I'm always like, why didn't you just order the thing you wanted? But it, it's like the I dynamics. think we could do an entire podcast on how melancholic, phlegmatic makes, like, restaurant and ordering decisions. Yeah, we could. But it's all about, <laughs> but, but part of that just, you know, kind of underscores the same kind of thing around I was I was coming at it from my point of view, which is that this is just a simple decision because it's easy for me to make decisions. Right. Um, and so I was getting frustrated because it's easy for me to make decisions. Well, that's not the way she experiences decisions. So I have to, if I want this to be good for us, I have to create a world as much as I can um, where when I need Amy to make a decision, I can allow her to make a decision the way she experiences decisions. Not the mm-hmm. way that I experience decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, back to kind of like the, the strengths thing. Um, we probably need to wrap this podcast up at some point. It's a little meandering. But but back to the strengths thing. Um, you know, one of the things that we kind of came to, um, I don't know, this may be a little random. But one of the things we kind of came to is that, like, you know, if it's like a life or death, like under pressure, someone's going to die kind of decision, like, I'm probably going to make that decision. Tim gets to do that. Because I'm pretty good at, at picking a path that has a high likelihood of working. It will probably work. May not be the best, may not be the most elegant, may not be the most creative, but it'll probably get the job done because I'm pretty good at figuring out like a path that will have a high likelihood of getting a job done. But I think what that sacrifices sometimes is creativity. Um, And it's kind of cool because a lot of the jobs that I've had have been strategy jobs and then I've always worked with a creative partner who does things, you know, like the first podcast description we had um, that I wrote was <laughs> Tim and Amy talk about marriage, kids, and other random stuff. No, no. You said things. And Tim things. and Amy talk about things. Yeah. That's and, and it's like, I just write it straightforward. That's the truth. It's not wrong, but it's not awesome, and it's not very creative. And then Amy writes, you know, the podcast description you see today, which was like, which was good. And it wasn't, it was also right, but it was also creative and interesting, um, you know. And so if, if there's a creative task to be done... Not just design creative. I mean, Amy's a, an artist too, but not just that kind of creative. But just a, if we need to come up with a an interesting solution, or we want to try something, or something like that, 
I often defer to her. Um, like I'm really glad that it's worked out that she homeschooled the kids and not me because I would absolutely like drive the test scores, but our kids would like loathe it because they'd be super bored and they'd be completely dry. And I'd be like, let's just get through these worksheets as fast as we can. You know, and, and Amy's taking them to the park and doing things and doing just making it fun for them and coming up for different ways for them to interact with the material. And it's like, that just doesn't cross my brain. I'm like, why don't we just take the most straightforward path to learning this stuff? Well, because that's not fun and it's not awesome. Mm -hmm. And so when there's decisions like that to be made, we sort of defer more to Amy. And typically those things have a higher margin for like, if they don't go perfectly well, we can try them again or we can change them or something like that. There's not long-term usual consequences to what color we paint the wall or how we teach our kids to do math today or something like that, right? Well, yeah, we decided that in the case of disaster, Tim is triage and I am post like recovery. So he is the man you want making the decision to save your life. And I am the nurse you want to help you recover and do rehab and care for you physically and mentally afterward. And you need both, but you know, that's why we yeah, work. And that's together. what's, and I think that's, what's beautiful about like, once we sort of figured out <laughs> this, this thing as, as this idea, as these ideas have matured more in our relationship and inside of us, we've come to start to appreciate that side of it, which is the strength side of it um, and how we complement each other and less so just all the ways that Amy bugs me and all the way that I bug, bug her, which is kind of where we started with it though. I mean, yeah. the very first thing we saw was we were like, oh, no wonder why, like, <laughs> you know, why that bugs me. You know, yeah. it's like kind of the first thing that jumped out. Sure. And as, like I said, as these sort of things have bounced around in our brain for seven years and we sort of like come to understand it better and thinking about it more, it's like we start to appreciate the good parts and the way that it sort of complements um, compliments together. Maybe the last thing we should talk about, um, is just how the self, like the self-awareness part of this whole like idea and, and journey. Yeah. So, um, I think one of the biggest things it gave me was that self-awareness. Um, it gave me a book and with all the tests that we've you know taken with the temperaments and with the color code and, you know, Myers-Briggs is it, is it really gave me a vocabulary to, understand and describe myself and also own it um so as funny as when I read the temperament book I actually discovered I'm an introvert which to probably some of my family they'd probably go duh but I, I didn't actually know that because like I said the temperament is sort of your blueprints what you're born with but it's not the end-all be-all and so I have um extroverted traits that I can in my toolbox that I that I've used in jobs or or to make friends um, I've had lots of people tell me I'm good at making friends. Um, that's something that I've I've learned, but that it doesn't come naturally to me. Um, it's something that I have to work really hard at. And so, you know, when you are a kid who has moved across the country at a young age and then goes to summer camp back across the country every summer, and you have to have a partner to swim in the lake every summer at summer camp, like you learn to make friends really quickly. And so, um, so... That was a big epiphany for me, and, and because of that, you know, I learned how to better take care of myself. Um, but it also helped me with other things, like letting go of the things that are kind of my weaknesses. And so, um, I, you know, sales jobs are a big thing in our world, and um, I'm just really, really bad at them. And um, because kind of understanding myself and understanding what motivates me, I could let go of the fact that I'm just never going to be good at a sales job. Um, and, and the thing with weaknesses was there's, you know, there's a lot of people that use that as, well, this is just the way that I am. So you're just going to have to deal with it. But for me, it's, it has started to become 
um, a, a place of surrender. It's become um, a place of owning my weaknesses and offering it to Jesus and, and letting him um, come into those and um, and surrendering to that I can't do it on my own, And but while also um, really starting to look for the gifts and the talents that he's given me and to direct that towards um, the things that I love to do. Um, I wish I could remember that quote. It's something like, you know, where your talent and your gifts meet with the world's needs is like where you need to be kind of. Um, and and so I'm, I'm really, that's really a recent thing for me. I'm just kind of started down that path of self-discovery. Um, and so, uh, so that, yeah, it's just been a whole journey. We, I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on that. But for me, it was really just having the vocabulary, not only to, to understand myself, but then to communicate to Tim and, and to help you better understand me. Yeah. I think for me, it's, you know, not surprising. It was probably a little bit of the opposite kind of thing. So I don't think at least this cleric doesn't have a hard time, uh, with, you know, understanding my strengths and believing in myself and <laughs> thinking I'm a gift to the world. Um, but, but what's been interesting is the, is understanding what that does sort of to other people because in every job I've ever had, um, you know, I've, I've always worked with people like directly and I've always had to get them to do things or else like I'm not successful. And I think everybody does in every job, but, but specifically, you know, working in marketing and working in the agency and working with creative people who I think typically aren't clerics, um, their other stuff. It's like, I have to figure out how to motivate them. And so, you know, not just at work, but, but at home and everything, what I was, what I, the way I would kind of go about that before is I'm like, you know, why won't they just listen? You know, why won't they just do the stuff that we know how to do? Sure. It's like, I know the answer. Why won't they listen to me? Kind of thing. And a lot of it has to do with because of because they can't get past the way that answer was given or what I'm doing to them by the way I am. Um, and so when I started to understand that, I'm like, all right, listen, maybe I'll approach this situation differently so that I'll affect them in a way that is good for them, not bulldoze them or something like that. Um, I'll leave space in meetings or I'll whatever more space than I think ought to be there because I know that the other people in the room kind of need that. And I know if I don't, then I'm going to negatively affect those people around me. So it's, it's again, it's kind of like walking down the, down the middle of the sidewalk kind of thing. It's like I'm becoming more aware of what the other people around me. And that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it, it's not, it doesn't change the way I perceive that sidewalk. And I'm still going to walk straight down the middle of it. But if I'm more aware of some of how the others are, I might find them a little bit more easier path or just a generally better path for all the people on the sidewalk. And I think um, that's, so like the self-discovery for me was, you know, switching from people need to get over themselves to I need to pay attention to how I'm affecting those people around mm -hmm. me. And even though it's not intentional, that I'm still affecting them. Sure. And so I used to get frustrated because I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm affecting you, but that's your problem because I'm not meaning to be rude. I'm not meaning to be whatever. I mean, I think I'm a generally kind-hearted person. Not that I'm never intending to be rude, right? We're all that. But but it's like, but generally, I'm not intending to be rude. If you're offended, it's your problem. Mm -hmm. But I've sort of like, like come like reversed on that some and come back to, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing that to someone else, if they're perceiving me as rude, then maybe there's a different way I can approach them even though there's no intention behind it. I'm, I'm not trying to be rude in either scenario, but I can, I can still change the way I'm doing it to where 
they don't feel like I'm being rude. Right. You know? It's not about, um, sometimes it's not about like what you're intending to do. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you're intending to communicate. It's, it's what you're actually communicating. And what you're actually communicating is wholly dependent on the, uh, the person who receives the message. Mm-hmm. So by me starting to pay more attention to the way they're going to receive it, I'm actually more successful at communicating what I mean to communicate. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was more realizing that I can have those effects on other people and that I'm in control of the way that I affect other people. That I can actually like manipulate that in a good way. Um, I'm in control of it. I'm not just like, that's just the way that I am and y'all just need to freaking accept me because... Mm-hmm. You know, but it, it can be really frustrating. I think on the other side, like I think one of the things that's frustrating as a cleric is like sometimes you do really feel misunderstood and sometimes it is really frustrating that you can't just go through the world, you know, the way you want to go through the world and just run down the middle of that sidewalk the way you want to. You have to pay attention and, and it takes energy and it feels unfair sometimes and stuff like that. So it's it's interesting, I think, sometimes because, you know, all these temperaments you know, seem like they're good at certain stuff, mm-hmm. but it's, it's also really interesting to sometimes unpack some of the weaknesses because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the, the power of a cleric is like seeing it as like a strength, but it's also like gets us sometimes really misunderstood and it's sometimes really frustrating to live in a world that, you know, wants to kind of rebel against that and where you can't just like wholly be yourself without ever thinking about it. None of us can, but it seems like, you know, sometimes frustrating for us. So Sure. And I, I think that every single... Um you know temperament would say that they're misunderstood in some way like I even again (laughs) reading Chip Gaines book um sorry that's my always my example but he was talking about in something that he wrote um that he often gets misunderstood as really shallow which and if I had to guess he is a tigger of the world he's a sanguine (laughs) um you know positive fun loving I'd say that's how we describe him but um but that he often like gets called out as being shallow and um and so, um, not that he is, but that he, that's often misunderstood. And so I'd, I'd say that every temperament has areas that, that are misunderstood, but I think what's cool is, and this is kind of just a recent development for me, is that mo- the more confident that I get in who I am and my strengths and talents and the way that I'm wired and stuff, the more that I've really been to appreciate, been able to appreciate and love the other, um, temperaments and the other personalities and, and really seeing kind of where they fill in, uh, the gaps for me. Um, and I, and I feel like, you know, your clericness is really what attracted me to you in the first place. Um, and then, you know, once we got married and stuff, we sort of started colliding on that. But now I feel like we're kind of getting back to that place where we started, where, um, where I'm really starting to see kind of where, your clericness fills in the gaps of my melancholicness and it's like when our two powers combine it's awesome it's and it's something we can do something greater together than we can separately and so um yeah I agree. so we're just i feel like we're just kind of learning that yeah so and i, and I think it's been a bit of like an evolution of of sort of learning that so sure. you know where it started i feel like we we divide our life up into like really big chunks and it was really frustrating you know like we're going to clean your way mm-hmm. or we're going to clean my way, which means just, that one of us yeah. is going to lose and one of us is going to win. And so we started to think, well, well, how do we not have like a, a win-lose kind of thing? How do we have a win-win? And the way we started to figure out, try to try to go about getting a win-win is it's like, well, maybe cleaning is Amy's way. Maybe grocery shopping is Tim's way. 
and maybe the restaurants we pick out is Amy's way and maybe the way we do the budget is Tim's way. And so we would break up into these big pieces, but, it, but in these big pieces, there was always like a loser. But generally across a sort of our whole ecosystem of decisions and marriage and things we had in our life, we tried to make it sort of like even because that's what we thought the right move was. And it, it was okay. I think we were trying to start from a place of just not tripping over each other. Yeah. I think that was like square one. Yeah, and that, that kind of worked okay, but there was still a lot of yeah. losing. Yeah. In in inside of all of that, there was there was still, you know, a less friction, but there was still a lot of friction. And so then we would start to like break things up smaller and smaller and smaller. And you know, I said on the last podcast that really my goal for this whole thing and and what I'm excited about is that we finally can make a thing together. Mm-hmm. And I think what that is is that's the fruit of of all of this stuff going into like higher resolution or us being able to break up things into smaller and smaller pieces because now to pull this podcast off, we have to work on the same thing, but we still have like little tiny pieces and it's not even like super deliberate. It's not like, you know, you get this piece and you get this piece anymore. Mm -hmm. But after, you know, seven years of working on this stuff, it's like um, this specific stuff, you know, it's kind of gotten a bit more natural and a bit more where we're able to, just sort of like naturally fall into, you know, in this particular moment or in this particular case or with this particular small task, you know, I'll let you take the lead or you'll defer more to me. And it's almost sort of like more natural. And so what I think is cool is like, I, I like that We're evolution. Learning. Yeah. And I like that evolution. And it just, it's cool because, you know, I think a big part of the reason why, you know, two years ago, even we couldn't like hardly decorate a room together or paint a room together without it being a fiasco was because we were still and necessarily so we hadn't hadn't gotten there yet, but it's like we were still breaking things up in such big chunks that we were that to to do a room together, we still sort of it had to be your the whole room kind of had to be your project or my project mm-hmm. for us to be out of each other's way. And I've just you know I say that because um, I can imagine that we aren't the only people in the world who sort of experience that, and there's probably people who are listening who are experiencing that right now. And I think it's cool to kind of like paint a vision of what what can happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but it's definitely a process and it's definitely super messy and it definitely gets, gets better, but, but tiny little bits at a time, Mm -hmm. sometimes almost imperceptible bits, you know, like when we set out to do this podcast and even when we did that last one, you know, the first one, it's like, we didn't say, okay, we've sufficiently arrived at understanding each other (laughs) and our relationship is sufficiently mature that we could actually take on a project together. It wasn't like, that's not how it happened. I mean, we can't even create an outline without colliding. <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's small collisions and, and we're starting to figure it out. So I think, yeah. you know, so I just say that to give um, to give hope to maybe people who think it's going to be a long and hard and messy journey. You know, it is. But I can say kind of like being a little further down the path. We'll never say we're at the destination. But being mm-hmm. a little further down the path, you know, I can say that it's, it's worth it and it's good. And um, and that's hopefully, I think, to said to kind of give some hope, right? Because it's a journey um, but it's it's good a little bit further down the path, and it was a hard walk, and it's gonna. It, I don't think it's gonna get a whole lot easier, but it, but it gets good, right? And it's cool, um, and I think I think maybe that's that's where we wrap it. I think that's good. Good, cool. Yeah. Well, episode two. That's a wrap. <laughs>